Hey, FBN, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning, and thank you guys for coming. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that, and uh, I pray that you retain uh, those songs, those prayers in your heart as we navigate our way through our passage today. Um, just a quick disclaimer, um, the point of today is to stir tension, not relieve it. Um, and so, um, um, let that be known at the start, um, and may the Lord already uh, be creating in you um, exactly what you need um, um, for love and obedience to him. And so you'll, you'll piece all this together as we, as we move forward. But before we do, let's start in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Our Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, grateful for the worship, um, just the declaration of your name, um, of your might, and of your power. Um, apart from you, all of this is completely pointless. Um, apart from your word, all of it means nothing. And so we pray that you would fill this place and that it would be your word that would speak loudest this morning. That you would receive the praise and glory <clears throat> um, of all that happens today. And God, that you would uh, um, do just a wonderful work in our hearts to bring us into a, a renewed sense of love for Christ. God, that he would be our first, our primary, and our, and our utmost, and that everything in our lives would follow in suit, and that um, our lives would be filled with obedience, sacrificial obedience that confirms to ourselves and the world we, we, that we do love you um, and that we are your disciples. So lead us in this work today. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, um, if you have a copy of the scriptures, go to Matthew chapter 28. That's where we're going to be. That's where we have been and where we'll continue to be as we've picked apart um, this um, passage that we call the Great Commission uh, that Jesus gave. They were his last words on, his, on, on earth during his earthly ministry, right? They were his very last words, and then he ascended into heaven. And so uh, we've been spending some time here taking it piece by piece. And so that's where we'll be today. But listen, as we... As we get going, there is this reality uh, of the human experience that I'm becoming more and more acquainted with. And I see this room, and I see you, and I know there's a ton of people in here who are older than me, many of you much older than me, uh, but don't dwell on that too much. I'm not thinking of you specifically, but you are older. Um, and so uh, I'm 35, and it's been enough time for me to understand the reality of just gradual loss, right? Certainly gradual loss of hair of mobility, um, as I can still move, but it just hurts a little more now. Uh, metabolism, as you can see over uh, uh, the last couple months. Uh, stamina, of course, but even beyond the physiological um, gradual growths that, or gradual losses that we, uh, sometimes it's growths too, but um, the gradual losses that we endure, there's, there's also just the harsher one of just the gradual loss of seasons of life, right? And so the other day I was going through my Google Photos and I just started looking at pictures of my kids from when they were like three, two, and one. And I had just this growing, grieving sensation in my heart. Do you know that feeling? Did you just realize my kids are never going to be three again? They're never going to be this cute again. Now, they're still pretty cute, but, you know, they're never going to be here. And, of course, every season of life presents something new and fresh and exciting, but there's still, like, this feeling of loss that comes of realizing, like, that season came and went, right? But even more um, devastating than gradual loss is that of sudden loss, 
right, where you don't have time to expect it. Um, it just comes upon you, whether that be a loss of a, of a job or a, you know, a financial risk gone terribly wrong or a loss of a loved one. Um, certainly, sometimes it's just a whole, uh, a complete loss of an entire lifestyle. You know, you get that diagnosis or something's happened and it's forced you into this brand new normal that you have to deal with. And it's all of a sudden, so much transition all at once. That's, that's hard. It's devastating, traumatizing even at times. But I would go ahead and say that beyond gradual loss and beyond sudden loss, there is another form of loss that's more insidious, more devastating. And it is this way because it doesn't feel that way, but it is that, right? And it's what I'm going to call um, just pre-existing loss that we all endure in this life. And what I mean is this, is that we are born into this world already bearing the grief and longings and groanings as that of those who have endured immense loss. And we haven't even had time to lose anything yet, right? But we feel it and we can sense it. We already bear the impact and feeling of deep loss. Why is that? It's because even in our, in our deepest being, we have this longing for our Creator, Right? We crave him, we want him, we need him, even though that's not the words that we put to it. We have this longing, and at the same time, sin has blinded and stained our hearts so that we are unable to find him, even though we were intended for him. Isn't that crazy? It's awkward, it's weird, but that's the state that we are in. And this is why people spend so much of their lives just running around longing and chasing after things because they have this intrinsic sense of loss within them that's been there from the beginning. People are longing for hope and restoration and purpose and identity. And so they spend their lives chasing every single thing that even slightly promises to satisfy that stuff, and it never does. This is the condition we have. This is the unfortunate human condition and the spiritual reality that we come into this world with. And I say this for a few different reasons. One, if you sense that, I need you to know that Jesus is the answer. Nothing else that you've tried is the answer. It might pacify for a moment, but Jesus is the only true answer because he is the one you're longing for. You just haven't felt that or known it or have put words to it yet. But you need to know Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that longing. Right? But two is this, that there's a strategy in our world. And the Bible says that Satan, right, the enemy, is the prince of this world. He's the one in control of this world. And there is a strategy that he has and the world has that loves to keep people in this endless cycle of longing and chasing, but without any remedy. To just be longing and chasing and craving and searching our entire lives. Never finding fulfillment, never finding the cure. And usually when we make, when we make these statements in the church, we, we go on these long rants about these lists that people give themselves to that don't promise anything, right? Uh, false teaching, false human philosophies, any ism out there that you can think of, sex, addictions of all kinds, any other craving that alleviates the symptoms for a minute but never really heals the condition. But what we don't talk about a lot is how even religion dare I say even evangelical Christian religion can sometimes serve as no better than just another addiction to pacify the symptoms without ever leading you to the cure. It just perpetuates the condition and actually blinds you from realizing that you have the condition. It is spiritually blinding more than it is clarifying. And it's weird because it looks a lot of times like genuine faith. 
right? They go to church, they're doing the stuff, they're, you know, they're in the fold, they're, they're doing everything. Like, it looks genuine at times, or at least the pursuit does from the outside. But inside, it lacks the one thing that makes it all worth it. It lacks the one thing that makes the difference, and that's this. It is a genuine love for Jesus, proven in sacrificial obedience. Genuine love for Jesus, proven in sacrificial obedience. That's what makes the difference between customary obedience and an obedience that is truly born out of affection for Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're going today, and that's what we're unpacking today. And we're going to use Matthew chapter 28, um, looking at verses 18 through 20, to do uh, to pull that out. And so, as we have been doing in recent uh, weeks, we've been reading this passage together aloud. If you're not used to that kind of thing, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's kind of weird at the start. But we read it together, it'll be on the screen, we'll read it aloud together, and that'll be the passage of our, of our context this morning. So if you could stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, And we're going to read together Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, going through 20. You ready to read along with me out loud? Here we go. Verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Awesome. Thank you. You can have a seat. Excuse me. So to catch you up to where we are now in this Great Commission study that we've been doing, verse 18, Jesus announces his authority, right? All authority has been given to me. And it's this authority that I'm about to say what I'm about to say, right? And he goes on to talk about disciples and discipleship. And he gives this broad charge to his disciples that you also need to be making disciples, right? Go and make disciples. And who are these disciples? Well, in verse 19, he says that a disciple is someone who is baptized, that you've had that public display, well, certainly the, in, the internal baptism of the Holy Spirit on your life to renew you and regenerate you, but then also the public display of baptism where you say in front of the world through the baptism tank today that we're going to have this uh, as a young uh, a girl is going to be baptized, where you say to everyone, I am the Lord's. I've surrendered my life to him. He saved my life. I believe that he is God. I believe he died for my sins, and I'm going to live the rest of my life for him and for him completely, right? That's baptism, and it's awesome. But that's not the only part of discipleship, right? It's not just believe, get baptized, and then you're good to go. But there is this process of teaching and obedience, right? So from the point that you uh, give your life to Christ, you meet him, right? And you you understand that he is the cure you've been looking for. And so you have this meeting with Christ, and you get saved, and you, you get baptized. And then from that point all the way until you meet him face-to-face in glory, right? This is this process, this fancy word that we use called sanctification. It's spiritual growth that from the time you meet him to the time you die, you are always growing spiritually, spiritual formation, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, right? That's the idea. You can't do it apart from teaching and apart from obedience, right? It is not enough to just believe and be baptized. That's not discipleship. Discipleship are those who are in the flow of being taught but also pouring themselves out for the teaching of other people as well. It's essential to spiritual growth. Without it, you are stagnant in your spiritual growth. 
And so what I want to do today is just really bring some clarity to teaching and observance. That's the word Jesus uses here, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. First, we have this idea of teaching. The word literally in the Greek, the New Testament was written mainly in Greek, and the original word that Jesus used means just simply instruction. And it's broad. It's used in a lot of contexts. It could mean, you know, teaching other people by just the way I live my life, teaching by example, or it could be a very specific Bible class that you go to where the instruction is there and that instruction being this, anything that informs and promotes and empowers obedience to Jesus Christ. That is the instruction. However that happens, that's what we need and that's what we need to be a part of. Instruction that informs and promotes and empowers obedience to Jesus Christ. Its purpose is obedience. That is the primary purpose, to observe everything that Christ has commanded, right? Which sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? No pressure. To observe everything that Christ commanded. But it's not as complicated as it sounds, okay? First of all, what he immediately commanded here is the Great Commission to go and make disciples, right? So we have that command from Jesus. But if you want to step out even further, really the entire New Testament is the command of Jesus, right? You have everything he taught and commanded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And then everything behind that just affirms everything he said. And so you have the New Testament that is the commands of Jesus. But I would go ahead and extend out, that out even further, and say that the commands of Jesus are really, it's everything in the book of life. It's everything in the Bible. Old Testament all the way through New Testament. And I know this, <laughs> and I feel this way because Jesus even says that, like, from Moses to the prophets, everything in here is about me. You remember the road to Emmaus? Right? Um, when uh, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, and this is after he died and was resurrected, and he's walking on the road, and there's these guys who are just talking about everything that happened. Well, what, that was crazy, right? Jesus came, and he taught, and then he died, and he rose. And he, he kind of creeps into the conversation, and then it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Right? He's all the way through it. The Old Testament even the obscure passages, Jesus is the focal point of the entire scriptures. If you want to know what Jesus says about something, what he thinks about something, you look to this. If you want to know what he commanded about something, you oftentimes don't need to start anywhere else than the Bible. Right? And I understand there's cultural things that you have to navigate, and that's what teaching helps you do. But it's here. It's in here. These are the commands of Jesus. Put simply, if you want to know what Christ has commanded, you have to have the Bible living and active in your life because it offers everything you need for love and obedience to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Now, I want to learn from this example a little bit because Jesus commanded his disciples to teach, and that's right. But he also did that with the confidence of knowing that his disciples were well taught because they just lived with Jesus for three years. And I think we could, I think we could learn from that as well as I, as I think the encouragement for all of us is to be in the flow, be in the flow of, being teaching, uh, of teaching and being taught. I think that's the encouragement for disciples of Christ, that we are always in the flow of being taught and teaching ourselves. FBN, by the way, is a 
church of teaching. We love the Bible, and we love to communicate to people what Jesus loves and appreciates and commands and expects. We love the Bible. We just had an elder meeting yesterday, and it's something all the elders, all 12 of us, just fully agree on. FBN has always been a teaching church, a Bible-centered, Bible-based church, and that'll never change. And if it does, then it's time for you to find a new church. Everything we do here, we, we strive to do it in a way that instructs people in obedience to Jesus Christ. Everything we do. But even beyond FBN, right? Um, if you are here and you are a child, a teen, someone younger than another person, the encouragement for you is to always be teachable, right? To always be learning, to submit yourself to the teaching of other people who know more than you, who have known Jesus longer than you have, That's the encouragement, that we all need to be teachable and submit ourselves to teaching platforms. And by the way, you don't graduate out of this. So if you're 65 and you just feel like, all right, I'm done, now all I can do, all I need to do is just pour down, well, you're wrong. You still need taught. You still need uh, to be in that place of of receiving. But we, we shouldn't just be taught, right? And I know that that is where people prefer to be. People prefer to just go to Bible studies, to go to church, to just go to group, to go to everything and just consume and consume and consume, right? The harder part is, like, you you be taught, but also you partake in some of the teaching. And that's the more direct command right here in the Great Commission. So don't just be taught, but, but be teaching, certainly in the way that you just live your life. Let your life be a teaching example, but also... FBN and your church is a great place for you to get involved with groups and, and, and kids' ministries and all of these things that we have going on, good opportunities for you to just offer general instruction towards obedience in Jesus Christ. But even outside of the walls of the church, parents, you've got to be teaching your kids. I hope you understand this, that myself, Pastor Brett, Pastor Brandon, the elders here, that we are not going to be held accountable for the spiritual climate of your home, of your kids, of your wife. Like, that's on you. Everything that happens here is completely supplemental to what happens in the home. It's not my job to make sure that your kids love the Lord and grow grow with the Lord. That's yours. It's not my job. We are supplemental to what is happening in the home, and you need to take very seriously the charge to teach your kids and to shepherd the the heart of your wife and and, and to step into that zone, to set the spiritual climate of your home in the way that God intends. And of course, you have your church and your pastoral team and your elders here to supplement you and to help you in that, but that's on you, not us, which I'm thankful for, right? Otherwise, I just feel the pressure of every single week of ministry, and Brett would as well, I'm sure. That stuff happens in the home. We've got to be teaching. Older believers, we've got to quit building walls between you and the younger generations. It's not enough to just sit back and look at the chaos around you. Do something about it. And do something that is graceful and truthful and points people to Jesus instead of draws the lines. Step into that. Teach. Equip. Get involved in the ripe field of harvest that is the younger generations. They clearly need the Lord. And if you have him, then you have a responsibility to teach. And listen, wherever you're at in the flow of teaching and being taught, we've got to remember that love for and obedience to Christ is the goal. Not your fame, not your name, not for your followers. Those aren't the goal. Those aren't anything. 
The point, the primary point, is love for and obedience to Jesus Christ. This is the goal. He's the focal point. He's the purpose. He's the power in, in what we receive and what we exert. And we've seen over and over again when teachers get a little too infatuated with themselves more than they are of Jesus Christ, and it becomes just vapid, loveless teaching. Serves no purpose. So the encouragement with teaching is be in the flow and do it to cultivate an obedience in your own heart, forged out of love for Jesus, and also to be a part of that cultivation in the lives of other people. He goes on to talk about observance, and he actually says this is the point of teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Right? We've kind of talked about teaching and this idea of these commands. But what does this word observe means? Because this is the teaching, right? Um, and like I said, the, the New Testament was written in the Greek, and there's a Greek word here that um, uh, Jesus uses for observe, and it's this word tereo. Tereo, and it means to obey. It comes from a word that actually means uh, to guard or, or to keep. And this is the idea of guarding and keeping something that is precious and valuable. You, I mean, you cherish it, you love it, you, you crave it, and it's something that you need. And so you, 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 you consume it and you love it. It is, it is the word of affectionate obedience that you pursue and you obey because there's a love backing it all up. And we see Jesus use this word in John 14 and in John 15. Now listen, because these verses I'm about to read, there's a similar thing in every single one, and you'll see it for sure. John chapter 14, verse 21, and then also 23 and 24. Jesus says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. That word keeps is that Greek word tereo. The one who has my commands and affectionately obeys them, observes them, is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my words. the same word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with them. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the Father who sent me. And in the same way, Jesus says in John 15, verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This particular Greek word points us to affectionate obedience. It's an obedience that proves a genuine and sincere love for Christ. That's the context of what Jesus is talking about. But there's actually another Greek word that's used in the scriptures to talk about obedience. It's translated and defined the same way, but the context of it is different because it's not about an obedient, uh, an affectionate obedience, but it's more of a customary obedience. And it's the Greek word philoso. And I find this interesting because philoso and tereo, this customary obedience versus this affectionate obedience, they're both found in Matthew chapter 19. I think this story is amazing. Um, this is the story of a conversation between Jesus and this very rich young person, right, who asks Jesus a really good question, but it is not satisfied with the answer. And so it goes like this. Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, just then someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, what do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you want to enter into that, into life, keep the commandments. Jesus uses the word keep, tereo, 
affectionately observe. If you want to enter life, then affectionately observe the commands. Affectionately obey the commands. Do the commands, the commandments, but with love backing in. He responds in verse 18, which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. He responds, I have kept all of these. But he responds, philoso, I have kept all of these. I have kept all of these by my custom. Of course I've kept these. This, this is stuff I would customarily do. This is customary obedience. I've done this, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus pinpointing the issue of love here, says, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your belongings and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Sacrifice is always a part of discipleship, isn't it? It's always part of following Jesus. When the young man heard this, listen, verse 22, when the young man heard that, he went away grieving, grieving, because he had many possessions. And I've read this story a million times. And I've always thought of it in the context of obedience and in the context of just, you know, uh, following the commandments and wealth and just all of those working parts. And that all applies. But for the first time I'm reading this, realizing that what Jesus was doing is he's calling this man out on his love, on his affection. And he didn't have it, which is why he left with grief in his heart. He didn't have it. Because his obedience was one of custom. It was regulation. Yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm not going to kill somebody. That's my custom. But it wasn't because he loved Jesus. It wasn't one of love. I mean, had it been, he probably would have sold everything. That's what people do when they love something. They sacrifice for it. But he only had a customary obedience. And customary obedience is not a fan of cost and sacrifice. And so Jesus masterfully put this man on the spot and he gave him a chance to respond and this man couldn't because he loved his wealth. He loved his possessions and he loved his life even more. Makes me think, you know, maybe you're even here and your obedience to Christ is strained like this rich young ruler. There's customary things that you do but when it comes to anything deeper uh, uh, to prove your love for Christ, it's always pitted against some other kind of love, some other thing, some other affection in your life, whether it be something related to wealth or, or sex or your body or reputation or appearance or relationship or, or really anything else. And more often than not, that other thing wins your heart, not Jesus. And if that's the case, that should cause some grief because what it means is that you don't love Jesus as much as you think you do. Customary obedience is prevalent in the church. I mean, how many times have you been put on the spot as I have put on the spot in the same way this rich young ruler was put on the spot, where Jesus brings to the forefront that our obedience is, is more of an obedience of custom rather than love. And there's so many who practice Christianity, and they can make it look even really, really good when really what's going on behind the scenes is it's just customary. I'm just doing this because the woman I married does it. I'm just doing this because the person I'm dating does it. I'm just doing this because, because of the parents I live with. I'm just following this custom because that's the custom of my family. The family my family's always gone to church. That's the custom of the era I come from. People used to go back to church back in the 50s. That was something everybody did. And so that's, that's, the, that's the customary obedience that I'm doing. I love this country and, and live in this country. And that is the custom of America is that we go to church. 
Or it's just become the custom of whatever the mindless habit is that you've created for yourself. But please hear me. This is not obedience of salvation. This is customary. It is not affectionate. And to realize that should cause some grief. It should hurt. It should cause some tension. And to be frank, I'm not trying to remove that tension from you this morning. There's a lot of pastors out there who would love to just tell you, but you know what, just do you. You're great. You're sufficient in and of yourself. Go be the best you can be. And don't worry about all this stuff. That's not FBN. And that's not what today's about. I hope that you sit in it. I've been sitting in it for a week. I hope you sit in it. And out of that grief, the Lord might create something beautiful in your life because that's kind of what he does. Listen, he did the same thing with Peter. Same exact thing with Peter, Jesus, Jesus did this. He stirred up the grief. He stirred up the grief, right? In, P, uh, in John chapter 21, we see this interchange between Jesus and Peter. Again, uh, Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and then he's having breakfast with Peter before he ascends, right? And he says in uh, chapter 21, verse 15, he says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the word that Jesus uses for love there is this word agape, right? Uh, uh, In the Greek, there are uh, multiple different words that that are used to talk about love. There's the word eros, which means like, you know, romantic love. And there's the word storge, which means like family love, like a mom for her kid. There's agape love, which is the, the highest form of love above all. But then there's an also another form of love called phileo love. And that's like a camaraderie, like a brotherly love. And Jesus asks Peter, do you agape love me? Am I the most important thing to you? His response, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo love you. Yes, God. You know I think of you as a brother. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? Am I the most important thing to you? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I phileo love you. You know I think of you as a brother. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo love me? Peter was grieved, it says. Stirred the grief. And he asked him a third time, do you phileo love me? He was grieved. And Peter responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that my love for you is merely phileo. It's a phileo love that I think of you as a brother. He took this whole thing, this whole conversation, and he created and stirred this deep tension that caused grief in Peter's heart because the tension is this. You don't love me as much as you say you do. You don't love me as much as you say you do. You say you do, but you don't. And it puts Peter in a state of grief. But listen, I'm okay with this grief today because I see what Jesus does in these places of grief. I mean, you take that grief and that tension, a lot of times that's the beginning of redemption. A lot of times that's the beginning of redemption. I mean, you think about Peter. He was put in the same position as this rich young ruler. But we saw how Peter turned out, didn't we? He has this grief because Jesus has caused this conflict in his heart. 
But then he goes on to preach some of the most powerful sermons, and he's a, a, a pillar for the early church, and he lives his life fully devoted to the Lord all the way to the point of his death where he watches his wife, according to church tradition, he watches his wife be crucified before he was, and then he's crucified upside down because he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my, my, like my Savior was. And that sounds agonizing, but it's beautiful because, also, because we know Peter and his wife are with the Lord now, and there is no greater sign of love than to lay down your life for another. And when you lay down your life for Jesus, that's proof of your love for him. And he honors that and he rewards that. And I think the rich young ruler, because he had that grief, very possibly had a nice redemptive story that's just not recorded in the scriptures. There's a lot of theological speculation that the rich young ruler was actually Barnabas. And if you remember Barnabas in, in Acts, he's the guy who's selling all of his fields. He's selling all of his fields and giving all the money to the early church so he can do the ministry that God has called it to do. Now, I can't verify that. Nobody really can. But it's a cool speculative idea, isn't it? That he gets another chance. He gets another chance to take God up on his word. And he does it. And he proves his love. I think the rich young ruler possibly had a nice redemptive story that followed everything we read here. Listen, if there's anything I know about Jesus, he is a master I mean, he just does some of his best work when people begin to grieve their own condition. And he'll do what he needs to to cause that grief, but then he's there to pick that up and to put that together and to do something remarkable like he did with Peter and possibly the rich young ruler. And so if there's any grief in your heart today, good. If there's any grief in my heart today, good. Jesus has pinpointed that thing. And I think what he wants to do is use that grief and use that tension to create something unique and special and beyond what you have been living in. So I pray that that grief just runs its course. I'm not trying to remedy it. I hope it just runs its course and leads you to redemption today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed. Do you know God actually wills human grief at times? You were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. He saves you and he removes everything behind that. I love that. But worldly grief produces death. If you got grief in your heart this morning at the realization that you don't love Jesus like you think you do, I think that's a good place to start. Repentance is where you need to go. Let that grief take you to the feet of Jesus, and let's just watch him redeem what he needs to redeem. If you're here and you've never done this, I mean, you feel the grief of the world all the time, and you feel grief even on your own heart, knowing that there is something out there, a person, someone who's died for your sins, and, and you believe that to be true, then let that grief draw you to his feet and confess him with your life today. Believe in him. Believe in your heart that, that God has raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You'll be saved. Let that grief turn into your salvation. Maybe you're here too and you've, you're just realizing, man, I've been playing the game. I've been doing the part, but it's just been heartless and it's been routine and it's been customary. And I need him to re-energize my love for him. You knew how that felt once, and it's time to come back to that. Repentance is your way. To repent, 
to turn, to say you're sorry to the Lord, to ask him to change you, to use you, to tell him that you believe in his, in his gospel, to redeem this. Man, sacrifice is the path to relief. Not everything else that the world promises. If you want to know relief, it's sacrificial obedience because in that sacrificial obedience, it proves your love not only to him but also to yourself. And there's no greater relief or fulfillment or joy or peace that comes than when you know that your giving up of yourself is in his name and it is for his cause and that he sees it and that he knows it. There's no greater joy than experiencing cost here in his name. I can't sell you on that. You just got to do it and then see how he fills your heart as a result. There's so many people that I think, you know, they get bottled up in their faith. They struggle in their walk. They doubt. They get confused. And what they really need more than anything, more than to pour their heart out on social media, more than a pep talk, more than a book, what they need is just a true act of selflessness for someone else in the name of Christ. That's what they need. Selflessness and cost and sacrifice bring relief because it proves your love for him and it proves your love for him for yourself. And in that there is joy, there is peace, there is confidence, there is affirmation that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So the question today is do you love Christ above all? And don't give me a quick customary answer with your words. What I want you to do is take that question and say what does my obedience say about that? What does my obedience prove about my genuine love for Christ? Don't sugarcoat it. Don't ignore it. Let the question cause the grief. And then bring that grief to the feet of Christ. And let him redeem in you exactly what he wants. A relationship that is loving, full of adoration for him, followed by beautiful, sacrificial obedience that always traces genuine love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray to you now, submitting ourselves to you, asking you to help us feel grief and to help us use that grief uh, to grow in you, to be drawn to you, to be moved by the gospel once again. Father, for any believer in this room who, um, Lord, they just... They just realize that their love for you has become stagnant, habit, routine, heartless. God, I pray that you would revive them today, that you would draw them to repentance, and that you would let the grief of their heart turn into something beautiful because of the work of Christ. For any person here today who doesn't know you, and today is the first day that they've been able to maybe hear some words that have pieced it together. They have the longing. They have the craving. They know what it's like to chase and chase and to always be let down, but they've never tried you. They've never seen you and confessed their lives to you. They've never trusted in you to be the, uh, to be the sufficiency that they've been looking for and, and hoping for all their lives. I pray that today would be the day where they would just lay it all down in their hearts and minds and just say, I want to just be rid of all of this stuff and just surrender myself completely and wholeheartedly to this man named Jesus who died for me. I believe, change me, use me. If you pray, God, we just pray that, that those who would pray that, Father, that you would just renew them today and give them life. Father, lead us however you see fit. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into a brief time of just uh, 
response. Um, I don't have anything crazy for you on the screens, no prayer prompts. Um, whatever you're feeling inside, whatever you're feeling in your heart right now, that's your prayer point. I want you to bring that before the Lord. And if you're sensing grief, be honest and open with him about it. If you're sensing that you, you're, you've been all talk, you say you love him, but you realize that your life doesn't really prove it, repent of that, confess that to him. Let that grief draw you to him. And if you're here and you've never believed Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you know he's stirring in you right now, you feel the grief and you also feel the hope of knowing that there's an answer and a permanent answer, you realize you're a sinner and you want to be, uh, you want to give your life to him and let him be the sufficiency that you've been looking for, then I pray that you would do that. And I want you to know that as we go into these few minutes of response, well, I'm just going to be in the back back there. If you need somebody to pray with you, to talk about this with you at any extra level, I'll be back there. And I want to invite you. Uh, uh, to just come back there and we'll pray together and we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. So we're going to go into this time of response and then right after that, we're going to see baptism. We're going to witness the story of somebody who threw the grief in her heart at a student life camp, gave her life to Christ and now she's being baptized and she's starting this wonderful journey of discipleship and sanctification and spiritual growth. And so we celebrate with that. But even grief was part of her life too. Let God use that grief to do something awesome in you. Let's have a few minutes between you and the Lord.